Welcome to the Explore NAB podcast. This is Kent Carlson. I serve on the executive team at the North American Baptist Conference, and we're talking this month about the whole area of youth, youth work, youth pastors, youth leaders, youth in the church, Generation Z. And we have the privilege of having Greg Henson and his wife, Heather Henson. Uh, Greg is the president of Sioux Falls Seminary. Heather has her doctorate of ministry, and she serves on the staff at Green Lake Conference Center. So it is my pleasure today to introduce them to you and for us to have a conversation together. Right. uh, Greg and Heather, uh, we have um, a month dedicated here in the month of August to deal with uh, youth issues, youth workers' issues in the church. And uh, so we want to spend some time talking to you guys uh, with regards, particularly the Generation Z. Now, could you just kind of go over, we have all these lists of generations. you got what are the builders, the boomers, the, the um, what comes next, the busters or Gen X, and then you got the millennials, and then you have uh, Gen Z. And so could you particularly describe uh, the, the two of the younger generations, millennials and generation Z and uh, just just simply from an age bracket. Yes, there's a little bit of fudging in the later generations. Usually, a generation would be considered about 20 years, but in recent years, partially because I think of how quick technology moves and um, and and we see such shifts, we see shifts happen culturally faster. Um, millennials are right around 1980. Um, start of birthday up to around 2000. Um, and so then Gen Z sort of starts in that 2000, 2001. And some of those dates you'll see with researchers will be adjusted slightly. So anywhere in about five years shift directional. But you get the general point that millennials are 1980s to 2000s and then Gen Z 2000. And, and uh, Heather, just for these, those uh, who are listening or who are math deprived and some or, or, uh, arithmetic phobic, uh, what would that translate nowadays into the actual ages? Sure. So your oldest millennials who were born in the 80s, 1980s, would be almost 40. So thir- think 30s, 30-year-olds, 30 and um, late 20s. So your, your cutoff is those people right now entering, young people entering college, those young freshmen, sophomores in college, those would be Generation Z. The beginning of Generation Z? Yeah. So from a, so from a congregational standpoint, your youth group, your junior and senior hires right now, as in today, 2019, they are Generation Z. Okay. Your college students just entering college, Generation Z. Um, end of college up through 20s and into your 30s are millennials. Okay. So millennials are shifting up into what is our young adults. Yeah, emerging adults into middle age. So uh, your guys, your qualifications, your qualifications in this area, what uh, both you guys, Heather and, and Greg, why are, we, why are we talking to you guys? Yeah, so my qualifications are the fact that I've gotten to watch and participate in all the great stuff Heather's been doing for the past 10, 15 years on this topic. So it's like, like secondhand research or what would that be? Like secondhand smoke or research. Um, but 
you go first. I've been working with youth for a really long time, and I currently serve here at Green Lake Conference Center as uh, the director of youth ministries. So that's in that's in Wisconsin, outside of yeah. Madison, correct? Yeah. Well, yeah, sort of near Madison. Yeah. On the southern, on, southeastern on Wisconsin. Big Green Lake, which is one of the deepest lakes in the state of Wisconsin, one of the largest lakes in, in the state of Wisconsin. Um, so we are in Green Lake, Wisconsin. And our program works with junior high, senior high, and young adults. So we have youth pastors from all over the United States who come, and they bring their students. And then I hire um, a young adult staff of, of college-age students. And so I've been doing this um, for eight years, and then I actually did my doctorate of ministry, um, layman's terms, it was on identity development in 18 to 29-year-olds. So my initial research was entirely in millennials, working with millennials. Um, and then, of course, because um, because I work with millennials and work with young adults, I'm always keeping up to date on the latest research and trends. And then I've hosted and um, facilitated a number of generational uh, research conferences um, based particularly on how the church does ministry to millennials and uh, starting now to veer into Generation Z stuff. Let me, uh, let me just get into it now on this. Uh, the many statistical things I'm reading, surveys, polls, um, but also tremendously in the area of just the stories that I hear. I, I never go anywhere. And I talk to people in their 40s, 50s, 60s who speak about their children and their grandchildren who are leaving the church. So is it true that millennials and then, of course, Gen Z are leaving the church in, in, in such large numbers? And from your perspective, that it, if it is true, why are, they, why are they leaving? What are the issues? One of the things I think would be interesting to perceive is I'm – I don't know if I like the language of leaving the church. I think what's happening as they are coming up through junior high and high school, and particularly in a congregation that may have a solid or stable youth ministry, what's happening is they're not then transitioning from that space into, um, into the congregational space in, as they become emerging adults. And so it's more that we're losing them in this gap here. Um, because I don't know if our youth, and it has to do a little bit with how we're doing youth ministry in the church today, that it's because it's not getting integrated into the full life of the church, that they operate separately and then they feel as if they've graduated and left and it's done. Um, and there isn't anything to connect them into what's happening congregationally. So that's a little bit of, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, in your correction or your dislike of the term leaving the church, um, you're, you're giving a major why as to, because they are indeed, I believe it's true, right. not going, not a part of a, a for the most part, or very many, a traditional church or, a, or what we would see as the, the church. And you're saying one of the reasons, uh, if not the major reason, is that our youth ministries, and I will put words in your mouth, have been siloed to some degree, and they're disconnected with the church as a whole. And so when they finish that youth Mm -hmm. experience in the church there's no natural connections and so they leave and stay away yeah and i think that's one of uh, other possible factors too that contribute to this but it is a significant factor in that our youth ministries and i hear this from youth leaders who so our, the churches that come and participate in the quest program 
um, again, from all over the United States, both inner city and rural and suburban. So churches from all different spaces agree in the same thing. Youth leaders, volunteer and paid, struggle with how to connect their junior and senior high students and make them feel like they are a part of the church already. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us that if they're junior high and they're senior high and even the youth leaders and volunteers and workers already feel separated from the church, they don't know how to transition their students into part of the church. And because they've never been a part of the church, um, not really like maybe we have a youth Sunday once a year and we let the youth do some stuff. But for the most part, our youth are, are so separated out. That ministry is so separate from the, the congregation that they don't know. How, they almost have to like come in as visitors in some ways. They have to completely reorient themselves to what church is. And it's hard for them to be grafted into that space. It's not really been a part of it before. So, so because of that, that issue, that thing that has been uh, understood, explored, seen in surveys and, and, and such that, uh, that disconnect with the young people when they come through a youth program. This has uh, kicked off a lot of discussions about how our churches need to be intergenerational. Right. Um, it seems to me that there's a lot of talk on that, but uh, not as much progress as uh, one, one would hope. So a conceptual agreement but a lack of following through. So uh, first, is that true? And then secondly, um, what are some of the reasons it's not working and what would have to happen to actually have it start to work? So that actually dovetails nicely into the, one of the things I was thinking about when you're talking about the, that gap or that siloing effect. Um, I think the reason that the intergenerational stuff is, is not taking off as I think everybody would say, yeah, we would love for our churches to be intergenerational, but to do that, uh, power structures within the church are going to have to change a little bit. Um, the traditional ways in which we understand and experience church are going to have to change a little bit, because if you're going to fully integrate youth, young adults, emerging adults into the life and ministry of a church, then you have to realize that integration is going to be influenced by the youth and young adults and um, the people that are engaged in that. It's not going to be, hey, we want youth, junior high, senior high, emerging adults to engage in the local church, but not change anything about the local church. That That's that's like asking somebody who speaks a different language to engage in your worship service without actually taking account of the fact that they don't speak your language. Um, the it's it's a challenge to do generational worship because it's it's a mixing of cultures and anytime you mix, mix cultures in a worship setting it, it takes time you have to think differently you have to be willing to adapt and change and be organic and be messy and that's not something we're all great at um, myself included so i think that's part of the reason it's hard is because integration requires a shift in the way we think about stuff i also think that um the, the challenge comes in recognizing that when you're dealing with youth, junior high, senior high, young adults, emerging adults, they're still going to be wrestling through questions and they're going to be asking things that older adults, um, again, myself included now, are not necessarily asking those same questions anymore, but there's not always the space to ask those questions. Instead, if a question gets asked, the response is very rote. It's very, you know, here's the immediate answer to that question, rather than creating a space that invites curiosity, that invites conversation. If you put those together, if you pay the silo effect, 
plus the the fact that there's not really open space for conversation all the time, plus the fact that integration would mean change. Mm-hmm. That's difficult. That's just human development difficult. That's not a. It's not particular to the church. This same reaction would be true for any institution um, and nonprofits that are trying to move from uh, a certain age group to younger age groups. Like that, that reality is just part of the human development process. You said a word or you said one of the issues that has to be addressed is power structures. So, you know, uh, that, that's a kind of generic term. What does that mean practically? What's the, what's the actual power structures that would be threatened? Well, a lot of our struggles in the church often come back to power anyway. <laughs> who, who gets to make the decision and how the decisions are made? Um, even more so than the actual subject matter that's being discussed. Um, but one of the things I think that's particularly interesting doing youth ministry and being heavily involved in youth ministry is how relational young adults and youth and you know junior high, all of this age group is. They're extremely relational. And one of the interesting things is that as we um, become more seasoned in life, as we age and therefore just simply add more experience to our resume, our life resume experience, relationships are costly. They take time and they take energy and they take resources. And so to constantly be opening ourselves up to build relationships with other people, it takes effort on our part. And so as we become more seasoned in life, we're more likely to have already filled all of our relational spaces in life. But what it means if we really want to invite them and engage other people into our churches, and this is probably quite true with all generations, but particularly with young adults and junior high and senior high, is we have to make space within our own lives to have a relational community. Because if there's something that can be said of millennials and particularly of Gen Z, is that there's a relational hunger to be deeply connected and deeply invested in other people. And there's a biblical precedent for us shifting from having systems, so moving from being systematic and scheduled and program-driven to becoming relationally driven. And there's a biblical precedent for that because if we look at scripture, it is over and over again the testimonies of people and how Jesus transformed their lives. So when we're breaking down the gospels, we are reading the stories of when Jesus showed up in people's lives. And we are hearing witnesses who say this is who Jesus is, and this is why he's the Messiah. And we see this over and over again from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament. This is the relational story of a God who is relational and loved us. And so when that's what I think young people are looking for. And so when we get overly programmed, we can become obsessed with producing a product or having um, a system in place. And then we were like, come alongside, like help us hold up the system instead of actually what would be most transformational would be for me to build a relationship with a young person. I think the other thing that's challenging for churches is young people are putting off a lot of things like marriage and building families in in the way that perhaps previous generations did. And so the church also, I think, struggles with what do we do with our 20-somethings as they are just taking more time to go through these regular life processes And then we don't know how to do ministry. We don't know how to communicate with them because we're so, like, we have our systems in place and we don't know what to do when people don't fall into our systems. Well, there's a, if I can butt in for a second here, you made me think of my own particular life experience here is that when I started 
the church I started, Oak Hills Church, uh, I was 30 years old. Every mm-hmm. single one of our elders were in their mid-20s. Um, the, the idea now of, again, I'm just Pastor Emeritus there. I have no real leadership role any longer. But um, if, a, if an individual in their mid-20s wanted to become an elder in the church, that would be a tough issue. They don't have any of the institutional memory, haven't read the same books. Right. Uh, you know, and again, if they're, if they're taking uh, a number of years to get through college, if they go to college, they don't have a family, they're, they're, it's like the culture shock, and uh, it's so, so different. And so here I see where this, uh, the, these, these structures are in place, that you can have all the good intentions in the world, but to, to make that kind of change, uh, people in power would have to give up all sorts of things yeah. that they're used to. And the question remains whether the institution or the organization itself could handle those, 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 those kinds of changes. Thoughts on that? Yeah, not a few of them. <laughs> but uh, the, I think the way you do your, your program here at Quest, you're speaking to Heather right now. Yes. Um, is a good example of what that giving away of power could mm-hmm. look like. Because a lot of times we're afraid to give away power in the context of organizations, churches, whatever whatever the organization is. But in particular, churches, um, because we're afraid, it, well, what if it doesn't go well? Right. What if, what what if, if it crashes and burns? What if, what if we let them in? And then the worship service is just terrible. Right. What if it's a disaster? Yeah, or what if, if everything goes wrong? What if the games that we tried to play at this thing are just so terrible that no one wants to come back? Right. And what I th- what Heather does, and she has to push me on this because I'm the mm-hmm. like I run some of I help with some of the ropes course stuff that she does. I help with some of the game stuff, and I'm the kind of person that says, "Well, you know, this matters because if we don't do this right, somebody could get hurt." And, um, well, Heather, and I always want people to not get hurt. Yes. <laughs> Where I'm going is Heather's always really good to say, no, no, no. We have to allow them to lead mm-hmm. without controlling them or, mm-hmm. or as they will never be able to lead. Mm-hmm. And so there are weeks, like especially the very first week of the program that she runs, um, the whole week is a testimony, testimony to letting, letting people who have no experience leading things. Right. So I come alongside my young adult staff, but I, they always talk like they show up and we just push them into the deep end here. Um, cause we do say like plan a worship service. There you go. Do it. Um, and then work with them about a to B, like the whole thing from start to finish. And there are definitely times where things don't go perfectly planned and it's not like the, they just, you know, we, uh, every young adult on my staff shares their personal testimony at some point in the worship service during the summer. And I always love that it's not perfect and it's not polished and it's rough around the edges. And yes, they write it up ahead of time and they talk with me about it and I know what they're going to say, but I also give them the space for it to not be controlled. And there are times when after the service, I am going to pull them into my office and I'm going to say, so we set our notes aside and we got a little rambly and you said this in this particular way. It doesn't matter. And I know you don't mean that, but like, (laughs) let's come back. And well, that's not exactly what happened, but uh, there are times in which we have to go back and we do have to talk about it and invite them to think through how they say things. How do I think through my words when I speak? But the amazing thing is that when we let people lead and we're not so afraid, when we're not trying to produce a product all the time, when we're not trying to be perfect, when we're not letting our definition of success be God's definition of success, the Holy Spirit shows up every time and it transforms people's lives. And I 
if I had a dollar for every time there was a situation and I was like, oh man, I'm going to be like rehabbing to backpedal through this. And like, and then to have youth leaders come up to me and say, there are students who heard this young person speak and give the testimony tonight or speak and give the word tonight, or they experienced worship. And like, I know that nothing that happened with the band on stage was the right thing. Like they all just like, like nobody sang when they were supposed to. And the drums were offbeat and the guitars started in a different key than they should. And then to have youth leaders say, whatever happened, what all the stuff that happened tonight, like my students heard God show up today and my students were ministered to. And the thing is, I feel like the church is missing out because there are so many people, even not just young people. There are so many people in the church that that we should invite into those spaces and not be afraid, not be afraid that what if we don't do it perfectly and then people get mad and don't show up? Well, then people get mad. The Holy Spirit will show up because our definition of success is never God's definition of success. And letting God do his incredible work in his way through human beings and all of the people in the Bible, if we really look at them, the ones that God chooses to use are broken and imperfect. And they are the ones who God loves desperately and does remarkable things through them. And so that that instead of like, we need people to fill in these program spaces because we think this program is the answer. Um, instead of inviting people to just do where the spirit is leading them and coming alongside them. Before I move on to the next point, I think there's, I think there's an important learning here with what, what both of you have been talking about. Um, if we are seeking to incorporate uh, in the life of the, the church uh, various generations, the, those of us who are older, who are kind of in charge and running things and placing the power, are obvious the ones who will have to give up space We'll have to create space. And that creating a space, and we should just learn this, those of us who have these positions of power, uh, will not just be on our terms. Things won't uh, go the way we always want them to go, and uh, new things will be done. That, in some cases, are awkward, to us at least, seems, you know, inappropriate maybe even, or it seems odd or or whatever. But that that is the... inevitable and I would say necessary result of, of giving space away, giving power away. You have to actually not just give the hours or the minutes away, you have to give control away. And uh, something else will come out of that that uh, God may be up to. So we, otherwise we're simply saying we want to include young people Yes. or whomever, into what we are already doing. Yes. And uh, that's that, that simply won't work from, from my perspective. Yeah, and there's a really important nuance there, Kent, because it's not just, well, here, I have what I want to do, and I'm willing to let you help me with it, but actually letting them have some suggestions in what goes along. And it doesn't mean, letting go of power doesn't mean that you completely remove yourself and that you never are a part of this team too, but perhaps you're open to new ideas. When they come along, it's not just, well, I'm too tired to run this program. And so I just want you to come in and run it for me the way I would have run it. And so now you can do it, but instead inviting them and saying, here's our mission. Our mission is to do ministry to these people. What do you see? What are the ways we could do it? Maybe we do it differently than we've done it in the past. Would you, can we come alongside each other? and brainstorm together and are we willing to do something new 
and use your gifts the way God has equipped you and incorporate that into the ministry that, that we are doing here. Cool. Well done. Let me, um, let me shift here. Uh, not shift so much, but let's take a step back even from the church and talk about Generation Z, the current, again, middle mm-hmm. school, high schoolers, yeah. college students. Um, what, are the, what are the issues today that uh, uh, the, the, that the church perhaps is neglecting to, to be a voice in? What are, the, what are the areas of difficulty, conflict, what are the questions? Uh, what are the fears? So just talk in that area about the church and, and, and current issues for a while. Well, Generation Z is fascinating. And it's important to note that the research that's out on Generation Z is still very early. So um, it'll be important in the next five, 10 years to be watching um, our big generational researchers producing their data because it is going to shift because right now they're so young, but some of the interesting trends that are very different than millennials. So I think that's, what's most fascinating is how different Gen Z is from millennials. I am watching this shift in my young adult staff predominantly. It's really fascinating, but um, generation Z is more fearful of the world around them. And, and some of that comes out of, we have a lot of helicopter parenting that happens. So a helicopter parent is a parent who is involved in like every single thing that their child is doing. Um, they are at every activity, at every event, they are predominantly making most of their child's decisions for them. Um, you know, Greg will give this example. A few years ago was the first time he's ever had a parent come with a student for a seminary visit. You know, typically when a child is done with college, they're making their own masters. You know, if they're going to go get their masters, they're making that decision without parents' involvement. Um, and so we're just seeing more parent involvement, and especially more than you would have many generations ago. Wait, wait a second. You're saying, Greg, that someone, a parent of a seminary student, came to be a part of the discussion in terms of the child's uh, or the young adult's seminary education. Yep. It's not uncommon anymore. Wow. To have a 22, 23-year-old attend a campus visit and have their parents with them is not uncommon. These are just very different shifts. Um, They also see their parents as, you know, their best friends. And again, this isn't necessarily, there are some, some good things that have come out of this, but there is a, so along with some of the things that we are seeing um, shift some of the problems that we saw in previous generations are shifting because you have parent involvement. Some of the challenges that are being faced um, by, by young adults or by young people is that they have, because they're always with their parents, they do relational things differently and less. Uh, so for example, their uh, Gene Twinge has a book out called iGen and it is all gener- Gen Z research. And one of the illustrations she gives in this book is that she interviewed some high school students who had never been to the mall without their parents. They had only like, so you may remember, Hey, when you're in high school, your parents drop you off at the mall for a few hours. That's not happening anymore. So they are supervised almost all the time. Um, They're more likely to just go out with their parents than to go out with friend groups, but they also have more access to social media and they're spending significantly more time in the social media world. And there's a lot of research 
that is suggesting that there's a strong tie between their social media usage and anxiety, depression, and there's been an increase in suicide attempts as well as some other relatively negative consequences. They're also sleeping less because they have such access to the internet. And so there's all these factors sort of playing off each other, which is parents struggling. And I hear this with youth leaders all the time. Youth leaders and parents are struggling all the time with how do we navigate the world of social media and how it impacts and is present with our students. Um, one thing that youth leaders talk about all the time is students will have multiple Instagram accounts, multiple Facebook accounts, multiple, well, not a Facebook anymore, uh, Snapchat. They'll have multiple accounts because they have accounts for youth leaders to, to have access to, accounts for their parents, and then accounts that they just use with their friends. We also see students using social media. They've become like little self-marketers. So because everything is on social media, um, I need so many people to like my photo, so many people to like my Instagram post or my Snapchat post. And if I don't hit a certain number of likes, then that affects my social standing within my community or context. Um, we, have student, we have students that come up some summers and they will leave their accounts open for other people to be posting and doing things because they wanna get a certain, like you have to post every single day in order to get these streaks and while they're up at camp, they're afraid they won't be able to get their streaks and then they'll lose their, like, there's all this stuff that's happening in the social media world. And it's hard for students to be present in these face-to-face -face, real life conversations because they're always worried about what's happening somewhere else, somewhere else on social media or with other people. Um, we call it FOMO, the fear of missing out. And it is really a struggle as much as we joke about it with our staff, we're like, stop being so FOMO. But they, young people are always afraid that they're missing out. And I hear youth leaders struggling with, I don't know what to do with my students because they don't want to commit to coming to things or doing things because they're afraid if they commit to this, then they're going to possibly miss out on another opportunity somewhere else. So students will be shaping and controlling how they are viewed and how they are presented online. They have certain um, ways in which they behave and present themselves, but that may not actually be what's going on inside them. So they may say, I have to always look happy on Instagram. I have to always look like I'm having a good time on Snapchat, when the reality is it's not actually what's happening inside my life. And I may actually be struggling with depression or anything like that. So um, let's just take the area of social media, for, for example, and the overuse of it and how it uh, addresses or adds to the fear of missing out from a practical standpoint as uh, certainly we have to be aware of this and i think youth leaders uh, for the most part are but I, i'm not quite sure if the just say no to social media thing works so what are what is the the actual prag i mean it's the issue of uh, even in my day with the secret targeted churches there was this big idea of the importance of relevance and we misunderstood relevance as being like so the church was going to look like uh, the world in, in these ways as opposed to relevance meaning speaking to the issues of our day so in a noisy world we have to introduce the issues of silence uh, and, and those those kinds of things in order to be relevant so the so the the question is what practically can a youth leader do with uh, young people who um, have all these 
various social media accounts and are, are glued to them and the FOMO and all that stuff. Thoughts? I think there's a lot of different strategies that can be used that are good. Um, up here when groups come up for a week, youth leaders sometimes will take their phones away for certain periods of time. Although then they do struggle with parents being upset because parents can't access their children 24 hours a day, which also contributes to that sense that I can't be away from them without there being um, a problem. Um, I think one of the best things that could happen is if we could as um, not young adults, those of us who are more seasoned adults, how do we use social media honestly and respectably and responsibly? How do we model that? Because I do think even we struggle with it. And this isn't something you're gonna find in a lot of the research data, but I don't know if we all, if all of us actually, I think we all struggle with how to use social media. So it's easy to say, look at how it's impacting our young people, but we aren't really wrestling with how it impacts us. So we, I right. think the church and church leaders have to start with, how do I use social media? How does it actually impact me and affect me? What does it look like for me to be honest and authentic and mindful and then to have conversations with my students about it? I think as soon as students sit down and start talking amongst themselves about the pressure they feel to have a safe place for them to process, like, I do feel overwhelmed. I think that students often feel really overwhelmed at the burden of having to stay connected to everybody all the time. And so inviting them into a space i think one of the blessings they have you know example up here at quest or you can do in youth group is you can come in and set your phone aside and for even a half hour an hour you don't have to be connected and it's going to be okay um, but it's okay when you do get connected later like helping them learn what healthy looks like and to identify when it's starting to take over and control but we can't model that we can't do that with them until we start modeling it within ourselves and we process how social media affects us personally. It's a, uh, there's an irony in the fact that I've seen a lot of uh, posts on Facebook uh, mm -hmm. and other places recently by old people um, mm -hmm. who are talking about uh, how it was growing up when they didn't have, uh, you know, yeah. social media and how it's ruining kids today. And yet these older people are all on Facebook complaining about social media and the use of, uh, of phones. So the, the, perhaps the most important thing we learn here is uh, not, the, not the issue of the just say no, but the uh, issue of the responsible use uh, our, our, ourselves. And uh, so, yes, Greg, you have something else. I was going to say there are probably three things I would say related to that. One is the one you guys are talking about, which is first thing we have to do is realize how much it impacts ourselves. So you have to, you can't take someone someplace you haven't gone yourself. So if you are addicted to social media yourself, start there. Um, as a youth leader, as a pastor, as an adult, I don't care who you are. Pay attention. How much time do I spend on social media? How much time, what, what image am I portraying? How do I... How does it like the research would say, yes, it's done with young adults, but it's also done with other people. It's pretty indisputable now. Like mm -hmm. if social media is a depressive drug, <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it, it is it is as addictive as drugs and it has the same depressive effect as mm -hmm. drugs that are designed to have depressive effects. So we might want to pay attention to that. Um, but that's first is where is it? The second is um, I would actually spend time working with youth and young adults on understanding 
forgive the fancy word here, but understanding information literacy to say, how do you engage in social media and engage in the internet or engage in culture today, understanding the information that you're seeing? How do you, how do you process? Like I would almost take a Bible study with a youth group and run the whole thing from an iPad or from a, like, all right, we're going to study first Timothy or whatever. I don't care what, what, and just have them pull out their phones and start searching and doing things together with devices so that when someone pulls something up on their phone, you can talk through and say, all right, let's look at what you pulled up. What does it mean? Where is it from? Who posted it? Why is that something we want to pay attention to? Like helping people understand having how to navigate information is probably a skill that we don't spend a lot of time on in the church, but we probably need to spend more time on in the church. So that would be one. And then the third one would be doing that information literacy stuff in the context of relationships. So not as a, just a teaching tool, but when you are having coffee, when you're at some place, when you're engaging those relationships, continually bringing that up. When someone posts something on, like maybe one of your youth or one of your friends posts a, a Bible verse on um, Facebook, take a moment to say, hey, um, relationally, why that verse? Where did you, how do you understand what that verse means? Well, I pulled that verse from this picture on this page. Well, that's probably not a good website to pull a, a Bible verse quote from, and here's why. Um, it's, it's a relational conversation about the things that you're engaging. Um, I would spend a lot of time on those things probably. Well, but also, so one of the things that's also very, very important is that social media allows us to decide how we present ourselves to the world. The challenge though, is that I think one of the struggles with youth today is this sense that I have to present to the world a perfect image of who I am. And I can't let there be any crack in the veneer. I have to pretend I am perfect all the time and I have to present this. So this is who I want to be. That's why I said marketing, little marketing self-marketers. This is who I want people to perceive me to be. And that's why you have youth with multiple Facebook accounts, right? So I, or multiple, sorry, they don't use Facebook anymore. Multiple Instagram or multiple Snapchats. So like, this is the one my parents see. I want them to see me this way. But this is the way I want my friends to see me. I present myself in a different way. Um, I've literally had students say to youth leaders who are like, I want your Snapchat account. And they're like, oh man, now I have to make a new Snapchat account because I can't give you access to my other ones because you won't like what you see on those. And the challenge for the church is how do we develop authentic relationships with each other in Christ? How do we make space for other people to not feel like they have to be the persona of the perfect Christian, but actually be growing into Christ? Like, how do we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us and to grow us and to challenge us? Can we create the space in our churches that we aren't always seeking perfection, that we aren't always trying to... Uh, market ourselves to the world, but instead we're saying these are broken people who Christ is transforming. And so here in this space, we will allow students, and that's where you get with the questions, like we will create space here for our youth to ask hard questions because we're not afraid that God is going to move. In fact, it's better for them to ask those questions here in this safe space where we can talk about it and let God do his transforming work instead of having them show up pretending pretending that everything's okay because that's what they've been trained to do in the world around them. You will only love me if I look a certain way or if I present myself a certain way. 
And yet for the church to say, actually, we want to receive you as you are. And we want to let God do his work in your life. But we have to let him do that to us as well. So let me wind this up with, uh, with this question to both of you. And I know uh, you probably have to get going. So whatever you can do, but come up with, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're um, leaving your positions that you're currently on uh, in this imaginary scenario. Don't board oh, of directors. Very imaginary. Okay. Yes. The board of, <laughs> the board of directors of the uh, Sioux Falls seminary. Don't worry about this. This is an imaginary thing, but uh, all of a sudden you're, you have a new job. You're becoming a youth pastor in a church of uh, 150 um, adults and uh, you have a youth group of 20 people, 20 young people, um, and you're just getting to know them. What are the three things that you're going to emphasize in your, in your beginning ministry there? How many people are on staff? You have a senior pastor, lead pastor, you're the youth pastor, and you do a little janitoring on the side, and there's a part-time worship pastor um, and, a, and a secretary admin person that serves everybody. Well, I would invest if I were a youth pastor mm-hmm. and coming into that situation, and I'm wanting to do some of the things that we've talked about. One of the big three things I would do would be develop a really close relationship with the senior pastor to make sure that we're on the same page about what we're trying to do. Because if though if that's not the case, you're going to struggle with whatever you do. And so I would want to make sure that the lead pastor and I have a shared vision for how the church, not the youth ministry, but the church as a whole is going to lead, lead into this reality of relational um, ministry in the life of the church, with obviously the youth and young adults being my primary focus as a youth pastor, but it's not going to work if that's not what the church is going to be doing. So number one would be making sure that, that that's there. And then number two, I would work with the youth, with the lead pastor to develop a process for the church as a whole to walk through what does it mean? What does it look like? What does it pragmatically look like to have a faith and to practice a faith that is more about formation than it is about having the right answers to everything. Um, Again, because without that culture in place, the programs and the activities and the things that you do with youth and young adults will, will clash with the culture of the church. So I would spend most of my first two times developing the relationship with the lead pastor and then making sure that the church as a whole has a vision for how this is going to work. And then the third thing I would do would spend, I would be spending a whole lot of time on relational development myself with students, but also helping students develop relationships with other adults in the church who are not their parents. So they're going to have a relationship with the parents, but how do they have relationships with other adults who can serve as mentors um, in that? So it's relational stuff. And the first two are probably cultural paradigmatic shifts. If I could have some way of leading into that. Thanks. I'm just laughing because I'm going to do things totally different than Greg. <laughs> so the, actually the first thing I would do is I would spend six months trying to connect relationally with everybody in the church, every family. I would want to meet with them either in clusters or in, in individually because I would want to hear the stories. Yeah. One of the struggles is integrating students into the congregation, but it's hard to do that if I don't know who everybody in the congregation is. And so 
by just meeting people and hearing their stories and hearing what is valuable to them in the church, I think that's significant too. Why are you here? Why do you worship in this church? What does this church mean to you? What is your, when did you start becoming a part of the church? At what level of engagement do you have? I would want to hear all their stories and I would want to connect with each person. And that doesn't just mean my youth families. It means all of the families in the church simultaneously. So I don't see these as like one, two, three. I see them as happening simultaneously. I think for the youth, it's building trust and rapport with the students. And that means I become something super consistent in their life. So whether or not I'm going to set up times when I am available. And so this might look through traditional youth ministry means, but it's also knowing what their schedules are and attending their events and being really invested in the things that are important to them and building relationships and getting to know them. Um, also so that as I am seeing their gifting and leading, inviting them, I would probably make out of their leading, I would have them, we do often see churches that have youth leadership teams within their youth group to think through planning and fundraising and organizing and, and planning their own things. But I would also want to be then petitioning the church who I've met people through, like, where are the places where we should be inviting our youth to be a part of planning and leading worship on Sunday mornings? Like, where are the spaces where youth, not just like, hey, we've got a bunch of chairs that we need to write our church name on the bottom of. That sounds like a good thing for the youth to do. But like, where are the spaces where um, they actually should be leading, like praying on Sunday mornings and um, worship leading on Sunday mornings or um, sharing their testimonies of how Jesus is moving in their life? Where are the spaces where you can be doing intergenerational Bible studies and because we've met everybody in the church, we are then creating these systems where we're like, let's do that. So I would probably petition the church for what could we invite people to do intergenerational Bible studies where each person in the Bible study does a lesson and they come prepared and having youth be a part of that along with more seasoned adults. Or, so now I'm getting like really, so I would want to know the church and know the youth and then build whatever programming we do out of that would come out of who they are and their gifting and what they're doing. And I don't know, what is number three then? So number three is you put the two of these together. And (laughs) And it's not that I wouldn't want a relationship (laughs) with the senior pastor. I do. I would want a relationship with the senior pastor. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what number three would be, but those would be my my two, three-ish things. And that would be a lot to do in the first year. Yeah. Like that's a lot in the first year. Yeah, it's tons. Well, you guys, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's uh as always, this is a blast hearing hearing your voices. You're a gift to the North American Baptist Conference, and I'm uh, thankful to know you. So thanks for giving us your time. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to leave a review, we'd always love to hear from you. encourage you to listen back in in our next podcast coming soon.